know your numbers and talk about them with confidence. And then you won't flinch and you'll be more likely to get those numbers you want. Welcome to the Easemakers podcast presented by Nines for people who are passionate about the art of private service. Every estate manager has a story and this is where you get to hear them. On this show, you'll learn from the best in the business, get tips and inspiration to fuel your career and connect with people who get it. Subscribe now and join the conversation at easemakers.com. I'm Mohammed Elsmore. And on the show today, Kristen Twyford and I are talking with Donna Shannon, President and CEO at Personal Touch Career Services, about negotiating your salary in private service. Donna started out in HR and recruiting, then moved into the private service industry after seeing a job post on Craigslist at the Starkey International Institute for Household Management. First at Starkey, and now at Personal Touch Career Services, Donna has helped countless candidates navigate the job search with writing services and coaching. It's really interesting. I just finished a call this morning with a client and just really diving deep into her background. And she's like, these are all the things I never thought of before. I go, of course you never thought of it before because you're doing it every day. It doesn't seem all that spectacular or whatever. You're just taking care of the house and the property and that's what we do is diving deep into that background and really deconstructing what you're doing every day and pulling out the things that we know the employers find important the other half of what we do is the coaching side and we've grown our coaching aspects a lot and I always like to say we focus heavily on the job searching aspects itself and especially like salary negotiations, which we're going to discuss today. But there's so many avenues into private service that it's not just this cookie cutter. You must have a perfect background. It's always this way. Agencies always want this thing. There's as many avenues into private service as there are people working in it which I find fascinating and encouraging, but it does take some perseverance and creative problem solving, which I think a lot of people don't necessarily recognize right away. Absolutely. Well, we want to do a lightning round to help people get to know you. I think so many people listening to this podcast already know you. So you come, you know, with a reputation and everybody already knows and loves you. So I want to know, is there anything that might surprise people listening about you? Anything that people don't know about you? I am very heavily tattooed. So (laughs) considering my business podcast is called Tattooed Freaks in Business Suits, it's not that big of a surprise, but... When I've gone to conferences and, you know, I do the typical Gen X thing, we got all our tattoos where we could easily hide them, and they see me up on the stage and I'm in the business suit, and then they see me at the hot tub afterwards, and they're all like, what? Especially in this industry where tattoos are not as widely accepted, to see very nine very large pieces is kind of surprising. That's a spectacular one. That's one I won't forget. Love it. <laughs> Donna, do you have a favorite fictional private service professional? And if so, who is it? Well, it's got to be Alfred the Butler. 
right? Uh-huh. Alfred Pennywise, you know, from Batman, of course. Because talk about the ultimate holder of the secrets, right? And keeping it literally together so much that the principal, Batman, or Bruce Wayne can go and do what they find necessary in their lives to really help improve the world? Come on. It's a no-brainer. <laughs> Such a good one. What's one common mistake that you see all the time that you just wish private service professionals would stop making? So I see a lot of really, really bad resumes. And the worst thing about them is how much people are selling themselves short. And I was on another panel with some recruiters and their wish was like, oh, I don't want to see people boister up their resumes or stretch the truth too much. And I'm not talking about stretching the truth. I'm talking about giving yourself credit for the things that you've actually done in quantifiable metrics. Is if we don't have like any kind of numbers to hook things to, all of a sudden these positions turns into like, oh, it's a little cooking and a little cleaning. No, it's cleaning a 20,000 square foot home to museum quality standards on a daily basis while preparing gourmet meals. That's like a huge difference between that and what I do in my house. That's fantastic. Uh, Is there a good story you're allowed to tell us from your time in private service? So I will say one of my favorite uh, resumes I ever got to write was uh, for actually the estate manager of Robin Williams. And uh, I do stand-up comedy on the side, so I guess there's your other big shocking thing. Robin Williams is my ultimate favorite all-time comic, right? That's what I would aspire to be. So when a gal called us up and asked for help with their resume and I find out who the principal was, this was after he passed away, I was all like, yeah, nobody else is touching this thing but me. I'm doing this one. And it wasn't, uh, I didn't riddle her for all the juicy, gory stories or things like this, right? Um, But I did get to get one glimpse into his life and finding out that another Hollywood comic who I also admire, and that they were still best friends, even though their success rates were not the same, and that they would call each other every day, and they got to know each other in, like, recovery. And it was just very touching to see that piece. What a meaningful project, and how cool that your two different worlds kind of came together in that project. That's really neat. Yeah, it was cool. It was very cool. Well, we want to get into the heart of our conversation about salary negotiations. So let's start at the beginning and talk about how a private service professional figures out what they're worth and what to ask for. I think this is a a tough conversation to negotiate. So how do you even know where to start? So yeah, that's the, the hardest part. It's not like in a corporate job search or a biz, typical business thing where there's tons of data that you can access from sources like salary.com or payscale.com or even the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, we don't have a comprehensive source. So oftentimes there's this play of like, I'm going to get as much as I can get, but I'm also going to make the mistake of negotiating from where I am instead of where I want to be. And what I mean by that is we usually see over the years these big 
leaps and jumps in what's been normal salary expectations. When I first started at Starkey in 2005, somebody trying to get 85000 to 100000 for their first household management position, that six-figure mark was all like, oh, you better be coming with some years of experience or have this amazing background so that we can upsell you because that was like our top scale then. Today, that is not the case whatsoever. That's more like a minimum that we would see and things are going up from there. So this is the mistake that people make. Of instead of negotiating where they should be, they start negotiating from where they are and then just do percentage leaps up. Uh, I do see more variations based on location. Part of the argument being, well, the cost of living in Los Angeles is a lot more expensive than Dallas, so of course you should be earning more to compensate for the higher cost of living. I know I'm kind of dancing around, and you're like, just give me a number, Donna. Just tell me what it is, right? But <laughs> these are the factors to take into consideration. You have to be business-minded when thinking about salary negotiations because the employers are or their representatives are. And if you're not coming out of it the same mindset, you're going to end up making less than you could have potentially earned. Does that make sense? Totally. Why do you think that is? Why the massive jump in salaries over the last few years? It's actually not all that unusual from what we see in the business environments. So companies will usually do salary evaluations on three to five year curves. And that's why we see these loops come in terms of years. Also, the more fluid an employment market is, the more we see a sudden leap in salaries go up. So in 2022, we saw a thing called the Great Resignation. And we saw it both in the business world and we saw it in private service, where people who had just buckled down and did what was necessary to make things happen during the pandemic and then weren't fairly compensated afterwards or the bad situations they tolerated because it was too hard to find a job. They're like, ah, no, I'm done. I'm out, right? So the employment markets became very competitive. And when employment markets become competitive, salaries become competitive. So that's when we're seeing now, 2023, salaries for estate managers of 200, 250, 275 and going up is because we've had the popcorn effect. A lot of people doing the job changes because they're finding better employers or trying to. And the competitive nature so employers have to bring more to the table, therefore higher salary ranges. Yeah, and another trend happening in the business world is this trend towards transparency around salaries. How yeah. are you seeing that play out in private service and how does that affect a private service professional's ability to negotiate? It's definitely in their favor. And it's not just a trend of salary transparency, it's a law. So more and more states are making this a law that employers have to list a salary range and the benefit package within the job posting. Please note, these are by state. So if you're listening to this internationally, I cannot tell you what it's going to be outside of the United States. That's my area of expertise. 
if you're in a different state than like Colorado, New York, uh, California, I'm not an employment lawyer, disclaimer right there, but uh, Cal Colorado, for example, we've had the tra pay transparency laws since January of 2021. Not all employers are in compliance and they can put down ridiculous numbers. I've seen job postings for like an office manager in Denver where they say the salary range is 50000 to 150000 It's like, really? No, it isn't. You're, you, you just put that ridiculous number in there because you don't want to say. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you see ridiculous numbers, that's why. But at least with the pay transparency, we're seeing some sort of footing on what you can expect within this given salary. And here's the best part about the pay transparency. When the employers see those comparative job postings, they get a sense on, oh no, now I see why I'm starting to miss out on the top candidates. I'm no longer offering a competitive pay. I'm getting outbid. And I would think that that transparency in a way could help both people who are looking for a new job and people who are trying to negotiate at their current job because they can come up with so much more evidence around, hey, this is what's happening in the market. This is what your competition is starting to pay for a role like mine. So what other resources can you think of that could help people understand what's competitive or how can people look at those job descriptions with those uh, transparent salaries and use that to their advantage in these conversations? So some other sources that I would definitely take a look at, I know some of the associations are working to put together some salary comparisons. Um, I believe the PSA, Private Service Alliance, is working on that. I know the Estate Management Network has had some discussions around these as well. Uh, so that's one of the best things that is going to help us out when we've got conversations that are specific to this industry. And finding out statistical data that's reliable. Just like every other industry that's out there. If I'm looking to hire a software engineer or a human resources generalist, I can go pull that data from my zip code. If I'm wanting to hire an estate manager, it's a lot more difficult to pull that. However, you can do things that would be similar in reflective industries. So a luxury property manager or a general manager of a luxury hotel these kind of things where it's like overlapping job duties, responsibilities, and scope of that responsibility can give you an idea of what would be at least competitive in a corporate environment. Once the candidate has figured that number out, how much more should they be asking for? I love to help people get 20% salary or more than what they're making now. Because most people I find when they do a real salary comparison, uh, they're underpaid by at least 20%, <laughs> which, sounds, which sounds like a shocking number, but you would be surprised. Say you step into a position five years ago, and at the time you got a great salary. Let's say you got 150 for that role at that time. And now... All your additional raises are going to be based on that salary. 
And by average, most people's raises are going to be 5 to 7% a year. And that 7% is very generous. And by the way, HR knows a lot of people will change jobs for just 7% more salary because these 3 to 5% you know, raise they might be getting in the year. So five years time, it's 5% more every single time. But then you hit that, what, the five-year mark? Oh, is now we're seeing that five-year cycle start to come around in the marketplace. You haven't done any comparisons as to what's out there. And then that's where, oh, everything just hit that big jump because we saw changing economic conditions, changing base salaries, changing cost of living. And that's where we're starting to see, oh, you need to do at least this much of a higher jump. Earlier, you mentioned how private service professionals often undersell themselves on their resumes. I can imagine that that's true in salary negotiations, whether they're negotiating you know, in their current role or being placed in a new role. What patterns do you see among private service professionals who wish they were making more money that's kind of like holding them back? It's fear is the number one thing that I see. And it's a fear for asking too much. As well as, it's a mindset issue too. And I don't want to say that it's the mindset of like, I don't deserve more than this, but it is a limiting thing. So for example, I was working with a client a while ago and we were talking about her salary negotiations, her salaries that she was wanting to go for. And on her coaching form, she had put down the salary range she was seeking. She wanted 100000 plus. I go, wait a minute, just 100000 plus? I go, no, we need to know the top of the scale. You need to say I want to earn dollars to uh, $200,000. Oh, no, I can't do that. That's way too much. That's asking too much. I've never gotten that much before in my life. It's like, Well, yes, but that's what's comparative ranges for what you're going after. Because there's a mental thing that happens when you say, oh, I'm looking for a job that pays $120,000 plus. Guess what you're most likely to get? Many people are going, oh, $120,000, right? But what happens if they come back with an offer of $125,000? And you're all like, oh, that's awesome. That's more than what I was looking for. But you know what? They had a budget for 150 or 175. But because you're limiting yourself and you would be happy with the 125 because it overcomes your expectations, you're going to jump on that and you are limiting yourself even more. And yes, you're probably worth that higher amount. So, how can I go about? doing this the right way in a way where they feel confident about what they're asking for? How would you have them approach uh, the situation and have this conversation? And in two different scenarios, I guess the first would be the person who's trying to get the job. And then separately, if you've already had the job and now you want to get that raise, how do you go about doing it? So the very first thing you have to do is actually train yourself to talk about money confidently. It sounds like a simple thing, and kind of like a crazy thing, but it's very true. It's like what it, what I call the two for flinching effect, right? So uh, forever and a day ago, yeah, you know, when I was uh, 
looking to hire an office manager. I mean, this is like 20 years ago, okay? But it's an excellent example of how this works. And just remember, recruiters, managers, they almost always have a second offer in their back pocket, but very few people ever ask for it. So I was wanting to hire, an, uh, it was actually my assistant, it wasn't necessarily the office manager, but I knew we were underpaying people in the market. And it was a tough job. So I went to the boss and I got it cleared to pay all the way up to, get this, $15 an hour. <laughs> and so I would bring in these candidates and I would ask them, well, what kind of salary range are you looking for? And they would all say, well, I was hoping to make $14 an hour, but I'll take 12 And then they do the sheepish grin. <laughs> I'm like, okay, thank you very much. So guess how much my salary offers came in at? Can you guess? 12. No, because I am not a jerk. <laughs> 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 I would actually pay them $13 an hour and make them in the Sound offer right. at 13 right? And to which they would gladly accept because I didn't roast them on the $12 an hour. But mm -hmm. here's the thing. Now I'm golden with my boss because I didn't go over budget I'm golden with the candidate because I gave them more than what they wanted, but it hurt my heart every single time because if any single one of these people had asked for even a dollar more an hour, I would have given it to them without question. And the whole reason why this doesn't stick is that two for flinching. They could not say with confidence, I am seeking a salary of $15 an hour. Boom. Mm -hmm. Mic drop. You sit there. You wait. Instead, they did that flinching. And that's where they went. Eh. And that's just like those schoolyard bullies. Two for flinching, right? If you can't talk about your numbers with confidence, it's going to hurt you later on in those salaries coming in lower. And especially if you're trying to negotiate your salary on your own, directly with the principals, like they posted the jobs themselves or with their family office, believe me, they know these negotiation tactics and they are going to make you pay for flinching. And it will definitely drive down your salary offer if you can't look somebody dead in the eye and say, I am seeking a salary of 150 to 200,000, depending on benefits and housing packages. Boom, mic drop. Mm -hmm. Thinking about, you know, that that new job conversation and when they're seeking, mm -hmm. you know, a new role, I think it's important to say that mic drop and then let's say they get a counteroffer. How should they go back and negotiate again if they feel like, you know, they're they're looking for a higher salary than what they were offered? Right. So that was our initial conversation. Now we get the job offer in. This is where... You always want a counter offer because, like I said, I almost always have a second offer in the back pocket. And mathematically, I don't do more than 10 or 15% more than what that initial offer was. Because if, it, if it's off by like 30 or 40%, it should have been figured out way sooner when you were discussing the salary ranges. And you may not get the full 15%. But at least you'll get like the 10% more. If nothing else, 
this is an awesome way to see what the culture of the household is going to be like. And, and this is where people hit that fear, right? They don't want to counter offer because they're scared that the offer is going to go away. Honestly, if a principal yanks an odd job offer off the table because you tried to counter offer that salary, good. You just missed a huge, huge, horrible place to work. <laughs> Yeah, they don't treat you with respect. They couldn't come back and say, honestly, something like, you know what, this is the best we can do at this time. Maybe we can talk about a bonus in six months or revisit at this time based on your performance. That's an honest reaction. And I am open and very much love to hear the honest interchange like that. But if they yank that job, it's like, oh, my God, they don't treat people well. Yeah. You know, they don't treat them with respect or, or communication. So have you seen that happen? And how often do you think it happens? You know, there's such a fear around it, but it probably happens so rarely. Yeah. And I, I literally and even way back to like in my recruitment days at Starkey, when we were trying to hammer out the deal directly with the principals and I don't want to spill too many tales, but in recruitment, there are some famous principles that are not that great to work with. <laughs> Let me just say it like that. Is that politically correct enough? And the ones that would be the most hardball and nasty about flat foot driving down the salaries just won't even hear it about, oh, they want more, forget it. I'm just going to go with somebody else. Without a doubt, those would be the people that uh, we would get. Here's the thing. We would also do this, stay close to our candidates after they were placed in a position that, you know, they would take the job and then be like three months in, six months in. They're like, I can't stand it here. It's awful. It's so hard to work with. Everybody's quitting. And I'd be like, look, just hang in there. You got to hang in there a year. I mean, you took the job. You got to commit to a year because otherwise it looks bad on you. This is your first job in private service. You you need to stay for your own future career. And that's why you want to see those red flags, especially on salary early on, because you don't want to be trapped in your first job that's horrible and kills your passion for the industry because you ignored some of the red flags. It makes a lot of sense. Now, how different would it look for someone who already has the job and now they have to muster up the confidence to speak with their principal? It could be easier. It could be harder. I guess it depends on the relationship with them. But how would you go about doing it? So first and foremost, I would make sure that you're armed with some facts. It's always going to go better when you have a fact-based conversation versus an emotional one. And one of the great tools for this is to actually update your resume or at least go through the job description of what your position was like a year ago and say, oh, here are the projects we got accomplished this year. Or here are the things that we added to my responsibilities that I was not doing before. Or here are the things that we passed on to other staff members. Remember, it's that business mindset. And when you can come with this evidence of here are all the great things that I've accomplished for you. For example, we finished our remodeling projects three months ahead of time, which saved you $100,000. 
I think we're worthy of talking about a 20% raise this year, right? And understand it will possibly come down to a negotiation factor again. However, big point, when you come in asking for a raise, you need to have the exact dollar amount of what you're going after. You can't talk in terms of range now. Ranges are only suitable when you're having a new employment conversation. Why is that? It's that confidence factor. Mm -hmm. So if I come to you as a brand new candidate and we're still exploring the job and I'm like going, I'm looking for something 150 to 200,000. And you're like, okay, I can work within that. Well, we'll see how well this fits. But now that I've been doing the job for you, say I got the job at 200,000 and I come back to you and here's all the things that I did for you this year. I'm looking for a raise of a, another 20,000, which is 10% raise. That's pretty good. Then you back it all up. Yeah, that makes sense. Any other do's and don'ts you would say for that conversation? Definitely don't get emotional. I know I already mentioned that once, but it's totally the poker face. And no, no flinching. Two for flinching definitely works here as well. And I also, I know a lot of principals don't do this, but... If you get an opportunity to sit down with your principal and do an actual review for the year, what were the things that you liked that I did? What are the things that I can improve upon? It's going to increase your value to them. Not to mention it can improve the relationship overall. And when the relationship is good, the money will follow. Any success stories or maybe some stories that can share some warnings for other candidates who might find themselves in this position? Sure. So one of my favorite stories, this goes back a while. I think it was probably about 10 years ago. And I was working with an actual, uh, she was a nanny. She was a very high power nanny. She was traveling all over the world with the principals. They had young children. Um, and she was doing things on a contract basis. So we actually updated her resume and her goal was not to necessarily look for a job. She wanted to negotiate her salary moving forward. Uh, she was based in San Francisco and while there was a housing allowance, it's still, Hey, it's San Francisco. <laughs> you know. Um, so we fixed up her resume. She took it directly to her principal's. And showed them everything else that had been added over the year, which they had no idea because they had not sat down and done a review in three years time. They added a child in that time <laughs> and, and they had not even addressed this in the job descriptions or the salaries. So in the end, they gave her $100,000, which for the time was not bad for a nanny and gave her a three-year contract with built-in raises throughout that time period because that's how much they were valuing what they everything she did for them but they didn't even realize how much she was doing for them so that's like our best case scenario where it's positive relationship pointing out everything that you cover and building that base trust communication for the future any on the other side, you know, any that you've seen go wrong that you would say, oh, don't do this? Yeah, 
So probably the most worst case scenarios we can ever see is when it's bad behavior on the principal, but it's also bad behavior on the private service professional where they might try to cut a side deal. It's, it's a unpleasant thing to speak about where a principal, you're there interviewing at their place. They like you. They maybe have done a trial for a week and they come up and go, Hey, you know what? Um, Kristen, we really like the work that you've been doing for us, but, uh, you know, we don't think we need the actual agency to negotiate this for us, do you? Why don't we just put together a gentleman's agreement and I'll tell you what, I'll even pay you under the table, which is going to be the best deal for you because you won't have to pay taxes. Doesn't that sound great? And then if you're very naive or you've never done private service before, you might say, oh yeah, we can work with that. Sure, why not? So there's a problem with this in that there are laws to protect the agency that when they display or send the resume for the candidate to the employer, they are protected legally from this happening because they would be losing out on their commission for making the placement. Uh, but also, any principal who's trying to undercut an agency, how do you think they're going to treat you in the job? And crazy things that happen in the interview are just a foreshadowing of crazy things to happen in the future. You know, I had probably my worst client of all time that was uh, another gal who was this. I don't mean to be harping on nannies, but somehow this one was a lot of good examples today. That's okay. Yeah. Well, this one was kind of like all the bad behaviors you could possibly do, right? Like, including me. Me. She charged back my services because I delivered the resume one day late. And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and it was actually sitting in her email the whole time. She just didn't open her email that day. I'm like, okay, number one, if you're ever having a problem Oof. with this provider, please talk to them first. Because mm -hmm. if you go and charge back, not only do I get lose that money, I get hit with a chargeback fee. I would much rather work things out with you individually. She was saying that, oh, she was just about to sign a contract with, with this other family, but she was getting kicked out of her apartment so she took a job with a family that was going to let her sleep in the same room as the child. And she thought this was a great thing. Okay, that is not a great thing. This is a big, huge red flag. If things feel fishy and weird, especially during the negotiation factor, you're not wrong. It's fishy and weird. Right. Wow. Crazy foreshadowing. Yeah. And then yeah. getting back to your point a minute ago, you know, about paying under the table, I think most people know why that's not a good idea. But for anybody who's new to private service and listening to this, who's wondering, oh, why is that such a bad idea? Can you um, explain that part a little bit and why it reflects poorly, not on the print, not only on the principal, but also on the private service professional? Right. So, uh, the laws regarding domestic staffing continue to increase. And by the laws, I mean the tax laws. Uh, 
in that the good old IRS has figured out, hey, there's like people making a whole lot of money while serving in private households. We better make sure that we get our money. It's the IRS. That's what they do. It's their job. And, uh, but it's also in your own best interest to do things above the board. Because there's also, are you working as an independent contractor or are you an actual employee? Tax implications are different with that. I'm not even going to get into that conversation right now. But that's one whole other podcast. <laughs> a whole other podcast there. Yes. When you are doing things above the board and following the letter of the law, it also opens up a whole other world that everybody else in the business world gets to enjoy. Oh, things like benefits and paid time off and just uh, being treated like a real employee, not this hanger on that I'm just going to have you do whatever I want because you're at my mercy. Because if there's no recourse, if it's not following any of the legal you know, world at all, you have very little thing ground to stand on if things go really, really south. Another reason that I came across after speaking with tons of PSPs in 2020, right, post-COVID, was a lot of them lost their jobs, as we know, and then they went to go file for unemployment, and then they got in trouble, and so did the principal. So I don't yeah. know if you've seen that happen often, but it was a really big thing. Because you're right, I think the IRS prior to that wasn't really looking for these types of taxpayers, Mm -hmm. um, but they're there. And I don't know if this stat is completely correct, but I heard something along the lines of 95% of people are paying illegally, right? Or under the table. Is that is that right? Or where do you think that number lies right now? I would say you need to look at the level of the household staff and, uh, for example, housekeepers. Yeah, I think housekeepers would fall into that category a lot more groundsmen, housemen, same kind of thing. And part sure. of it can just be ignorance on part of the principles. Because, you know, I could be just an attorney here in Denver and I can afford my housekeeper, you know, who I happen to share with three other people on the block. And I'm not necessarily a high net worth employer who's got a 20,000 square foot home. But I've got, you know, a nice 5,000 square foot place that I need help cleaning. And... A lot of times we see people that they go, oh, I didn't know I had to pay taxes on domestic staff. This is my very first housekeeper ever. Or I don't know how to do this. So I'm going to ignore the problem and I'm going to pay them cash. <laughs> but if they've got a sophisticated property or they're moving into that level, they should know. And there's plenty of awesome sources you know, available to help them out with things like, how do I pay my taxes on my employees if they just know to look for it? And it's always cheaper to pay the taxes than to pay the penalties. Donna, do you have any tips for how to be creative with your negotiations aside from the price, right? The amount? Is there anything you do regarding benefits and 401ks or stuff like that? Yeah, I love getting creative on the salary negotiations because there'll be times when they can't move on salary, but maybe they could move on additional paid time off uh, or side benefits such as you know, providing things like the mobile devices, 
a brand new laptop, you know, use of a car, these things. Uh, housing allowances. One thing with housing allowances, do make sure that you check with local laws. Sometimes the housing allowance may or may not be subject to tax. So when you're looking at perks and benefits like those kind of things, um, just keep that in mind because uh, you don't want to get a surprise at the end of the year when you found out, oh, they never gave me health insurance, but they gave me a stipend for health insurance. But now my state covers that as income. This other state didn't cover it as income. It can get a little messy. Make sure you're talking to a tax professional and get some advice um, as you're making your game plan. Mm -hmm. Anything that we haven't covered or any final words of wisdom for private service professionals around salary negotiations? Just my number one favorite thing, know your numbers and talk about them with confidence. And I mean, get used to talking about numbers. It's not going to get better unless you practice it. I mean, practice it in a mirror with your best friend, with your significant other, with your cat, with your dog, with anybody that you can say these numbers and, and number one, not have them freak out, uh, just so that when it's game time, you can say, I am worth two hundred dollars to $250,000. And then you won't flinch and you'll be more likely to get those numbers you want. Big thanks to Donna Shannon for joining us today. Learn more about Donna's coaching services and get a free 30-minute consultation at personaltouchcareerservices.com. If you enjoyed our conversation and want to hear more from experts in the private service industry, be sure to subscribe and leave us a review. Tell us about your favorite episodes and let us know what you want to learn next. To connect with other estate managers on a regular basis, join the conversation in the EaseMakers community. The EaseMakers podcast and the EaseMakers community are presented by Nines, the first dynamic household management platform built for discerning households and the private service professionals who support them. Visit ninesliving.com to see how Nines can help you bring your house manual to life so you can live with ease. I'm Mohamed Elzamoy. And I'm Kristen Twyford. And we'll see you next time on the EaseMakers podcast. Keep